Um, If you have your Bibles with you this morning, we are in the Gospel of Luke. We're back in it. We've been in the Gospel since last uh, December 1st, beginning of December. It's been an amazing ride so far. I believe we're in chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read the passage. I'm going to pray one more time, and then we're going to dive in and unpack it for today. Read with me the Gospel of Luke, beginning in chapter 6, verse 1. Luke writes, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in, his hand, in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with them. And he said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. and And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we read these words, and we hear about customs and, and things that were done in a day that seems so long ago. But Lord, we know that Luke recorded these words. Holy Spirit, we know that you inspired him to speak to the people who were there, witnesses who saw these things, heard these things that Jesus said, and to record them because they're important to the story of why Jesus came and who he is, and therefore they're important to us. Here today. Well, Father, I just pray that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take the thoughts and words that you've given to me and that, that you would use them to teach us and instruct us exactly what was going on in that day and what that means for us today. And I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So I'm, I'm excited to be back in this text with you this week. Um, I'm, I'm really excited today because Jesus is drawing a black and white line in the sand. I'm kind of that kind of guy, like Peter, like black and white, but, you know, they're, you know we need to be open-handed. And, and all, but Jesus is, and it's not like this is the beginning of Jesus doing that, right, in the gospel. It's been going on for a while. But today, the line in the sand becomes extremely clear, and it actually makes Jesus a marked man. Excited? Looking forward to this? Well, I said a few weeks ago, things were making a dramatic turn, and they have. And it all started, of course, you remember the story when Jesus had been tempted in the, in, in, in the desert, in the wilderness, and he defeated Satan, and he comes back, and he's preaching all over Galilee in their synagogues. And then because the word gets out about how good a preacher is and how amazing his words are and how wise he is, he gets invited home to Nazareth, to his home church, to preach to the locals, people he grew up with. You remember how that went, right? 
I mean, it starts out great, just like all the other people in all the other towns in Galilee and throughout Judea that he'd been preaching in for about six months. They loved him at first. They're like, this is our own boy. Listen to him. He's amazing. Things changed. Jesus opens the scroll from Isaiah 61, and he read these words to them. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Well, they soon realized as he expounded on this text, as he preached the sermon to them, and especially when he came to his conclusion where he said this, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. When Jesus uttered those words, they realized right away that he's referring to himself as the fulfillment of this prophecy from Isaiah that he, in fact, is the Messiah. But they were also deeply offended. Deeply offended. You know why? You remember. It's because they all of a sudden heard the exposition and they realized that he was saying, guys, I've come for you. Every one of you here in the synagogue today, you are the spiritually bankrupt. You are the prisoners. You are the blind. They really loved that, didn't they? No. They were deeply offended. They literally chased him to the outskirts of the town and they wanted to kill him. Hometown boy, done good? Quite a change in the story. Now, chapter 5, which we've just finished a couple of weeks ago, that was amazing too, wasn't it? Amazing the, the, the orderly account that Luke records of what Jesus has been doing. He, he starts off and he, 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 he calls this lowly fisherman. Like he doesn't go to the rabbis in town and say, hey, listen, um, I, what I'd like to do is like your like 12, 12 rabbis here, give me, give me your top student, all 12 of you, you know, really knows the Torah, knows the Old Testament, knows the law, you know, young, you know, really sharp dudes. Give me 12 of those guys and I'll be good. I can use them. It's kind of what the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious in the day would have thought. No, he, he goes out in a boat and he calls a fisherman. <laughs> like really down there on the food chain when it comes to career choices, right? Peter. He calls Peter to come and be one of his disciples. Then right after that, a leper comes up to him, an unclean man, and he not only heals this unclean man, but he touches him. That was unheard of. Well, the news about his preaching, the news of his calling of his first disciples, because it was Peter and Andrew and James and John that he called on that particular occasion anyway, and the touching of this unclean leper that, that gets all, we read in the text, all of the Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem and all over the place, they've got to come and find out what's going on here. And they do. They come to Capernaum, and the first time that they meet Peter, I mean, Jesus, he's in Peter's home, and the place is packed, and they're sitting there in the front row, and, and Jesus is about to start speaking, and all of a sudden, the roof opens up, right? And this paralytic gets dropped down in front of them, and, and they're going, oh, okay, good, we're going to see Jesus heal somebody. We're going to see how he does that, if there's any tricks behind this, right? Well, what Jesus does shocks them. He says, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, they murmur to themselves in their hearts. They don't actually speak it out loud, but they're wondering to themselves, who does this guy think he is? Only God, only God can forgive sins. Yeah, exactly. They kind of missed that, didn't they, right? 
But something remarkable happened at that point. We saw and learned at that point that Jesus clearly is God. He's clearly defined because he knew their thoughts. He knew their thoughts. He knew their hearts. He knew exactly what they were thinking. And so then he, he asks them this question, which he's going to do again today, which we see in our text today. He asks, which is easier, do you think? For me to say, your sins are forgiven or to heal the man? And well, their response is, well, it's obviously easier to say your sins are forgiven. I mean, their thought is, well, how can we prove that, right? Where's the proof for that? And Jesus is like, it's not easier for Jesus. We learned that, right? It's harder for Jesus to forgive your sins. To forgive your sins and to purchase your sins, he had to die on the cross in your place and for your sins. But to prove his point, Jesus heals the man. And he gets up, takes his bed, and he goes home, glorifying and praising God. It's just amazing how, how this goes on. Well, then the next thing he does is he calls Levi. Well, okay, we've got a fisherman. Now he calls a tax collector. Like, you talk about lowlifes in a culture. This is, the, this is the bottom feeding bottom feeder, right, that he calls. And, and then Levi, Matthew, calls a big party in his home, invites all of his tax collector and other sinner friends, prostitutes probably, and a bunch of his street people friends to come on over and meet Jesus. Well, Pharisees and scribes are freaking out. They're outside, and when the apostles come out, they accost them and go, what are you doing? What are you doing eating with people like this? Low lives. What are you doing? Boy, we learned some amazing, wonderful things about Jesus in that, didn't we? He came for you and for me. He will eat with you and with me. It was an amazing story, but it's sad to see, really, how they responded. Well, finally, two weeks ago, he exposed their hearts, the hearts of the religious, very clearly. They, they, they wanted to make the whole deal about what Jesus was doing in there with these low-life people about fasting. Why are you eating and drinking and having a party when we're fasting? Look at us, us holy and righteous people. You know, we're sad and we're gloomy because we're fasting, right? They wanted to make it about that. Well, Jesus exposes their hearts. And, and it, so, listen, it might appear, I think, to this point in time in the gospel, it might appear that Jesus' greatest enemy is solely the religious leaders, Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees those in charge of the synagogue and the temple. I want to uh, disabuse you of that thought today because here's what's going to happen in less than two years. All of the people, all of the people that Jesus loved and cared for and ate with, the majority of them, except for 120 fearful disciples, are going to stand up with the Jewish religious leaders and yell, crucify him, crucify him. What happened? Why would that happen, do you think? Why would people who were being kept in bondage by the religious leaders and their religion, why would they not love this man who came to set them free from all this, who came to save them and forgive them and give them eternal life? He gave the gospel to them all the time. I, I, I'm establishing a kingdom. I want you to be part of it. Why would this happen? Well, I hope as we tackle today's text, you're going to see why. So let's have a look. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6 say this. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them with their hands. 
But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So for the past, past three chapters, Jesus, I believe Luke actually has been building to this climax. He's been building to this point. He's a good writer. He's a factician. He's a doctor. He's a documentarian. He, he, he's lined this up purposely to get to this point. We arrive at this today and we get to the point of the Sabbath. There is nothing, was nothing, as sacred and as holy and as important to the religious in that day. Nothing. Nothing as sacrosanct as the Sabbath. And here's Jesus playing around with it, doing what he's not supposed to be doing on the Sabbath. So first things first, let's consider what the Sabbath is meant to be. Let's, let's look at that first. And then secondly, what they had made it into, which is interesting. And so do you know where we're introduced to the Sabbath in the Bible? Anybody know? It's okay, we're MB, which means mostly Baptist. You're allowed to talk out loud here. Does anybody know where we, we find the Sabbath in the Bible? Ten Commandments, maybe? You're right, okay. Ten Commandments is where we find it. Yes, we do. In Exodus chapter 20, it's the fourth commandment. And let me read it for you. Let's put it on screen and let's read it together. It says this. Remember the Sabbath day. Now, this is, this is God giving this to Moses, right? This is God commanding this to Moses. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Now listen, I, I think many of us, many people in our world today, uh, struggle with the whole concept of commandments, right? It's like parents with their children. Thou shalt not, right? I mean, commandments are not something that we grow up usually thinking or in our world today thinking are good for us, right? I mean, the idea, some people might think that really they're just a bunch of rules and regulations from a, from a God that just wants to, you know, find us messing up and go zap, Right? Or, I mean, worst case scenario, it's a God who's, you know, he's keeping the scorecard. You know? And every time we mess up and we break one of the commandments, he's going, fire's getting hotter. You know, just, that's the view I think that we can have. But what if, what if, what if, come on, what if God's laws, his commandments are for our good? That's what we've seen, right, as we studied the Ten Commandments in the past. What if they're intended for our flourishing as human beings? I mean, He is, after all, the one who created us. You would think, based on that, that He is the one who knows best how we then should live in order to flourish, in order to be joyful and happy and have good lives. So look, at, look with me again at this commandment, carefully at it. What's the bottom line here when you read this? What do you think is the bottom line that you're reading this morning? Right? What, what is the bottom line that it's saying, that it's telling us? It's just one thing, isn't it? It's really just one thing. Don't work. <laughs> Not much else, really, when you look at it. It's, it. Take one day off per week, we're seeing here. Work hard six days. You know, we in our smart culture, we've, you know, TGIF, woohoo, 
weekend. No, actually, you know, maybe five days a week you work hard in your career and what you need to do uh, to, you know, feed your family, provide for your family and, and, and pay the mortgage and all the rest of those things. And then maybe Saturday is a day where you look after that thing that you're paying the mortgage on, you know, like, like the house, around the house. And then there's a day where God is saying, listen, here's God saying this, take the day off. I know how you're made. You need to rest. (laughs) So God's commanding us because A, look, A, he knows what's good for us, and B, he knows we need to be told. (laughs) Anybody have a problem with taking a day off, resting? Okay, I'm talking to a room that doesn't own a t-shirt like I do. Come on, we're his kids. He knows we need to be commanded to take a day off to rest. But that's it. When you look at it, that's really all the command was about. Take a day off from your work, what you do to provide for your family, etc. You know, rest from that work on, on Sunday or one day, or uh, for those in the people of Israel on that day, on Saturday from 6 p.m. on Friday. And, and then basically do this. Rest. Get restored so that you can recreate, right? And also we see this in there. Keep it holy to the Lord. He's supposed to be part of that day of rest with you because the best rest is in the Lord, in Him. Now, there's something to hear that I think some of us adrenaline seekers, people much younger than me, but me too sometimes, you've got to be wary of this. got to be a little bit careful here, right? Uh, recreation, the, world is actually, the word is actually recreate, so you need to rest and get restored in order to recreate, and yet we've turned it into recreation. You've got to be careful because the logic is, right, I've got this one day off or I'm not doing any work, and, and I get this one day to cram in as much biking, running, climbing, skiing, whatever. They're all good, but listen, whatever, because it's the only day that I've got. And then by Sunday night, you're dead, <laughs> right? And Monday morning, you get up and go, oh, more coffee. you got to go to work. That's not rest. Now, you be the judge, but that's not rest. So now here's what happens, okay? Here's what happens when you run something good, like the Sabbath that God has given to us to bless us. It's for us when you run it through the filter of religion. Here's what happens. The uber-religious see and hear this, and they think, oh, okay, good. Okay, this is a way I can work this out. So this is a way for me to show not only God but other people how holy and righteous and good and perfect I am. And, and therefore, by doing all these things, you know, being very careful about what I do and what I don't do, that at some point God's kind of on the hook and he has to approve and accept of me because look at what I'm doing. That's what happens when you run something good like that through the filter of religion. It's frightening what they did with the Sabbath. Honestly, I did a little bit of research on this. It's absolutely frightening what they did with the Sabbath in the centuries. By the time Jesus is walking in this grain field with his disciples, they have turned the Sabbath, hear this, into the most hated and painful 24 hours of the week. You think your parents forcing you to come to church here on Sunday is painful? Get over it. It's not even close to what they turned the Sabbath into in those days. 
we don't have time to go into all the details, but let me give you a little bit of background on it. First of all, they have another book besides the Old Testament and, and, and uh, the Torah. They have something called the Talmud. And literally in the Talmud, there are 24 chapters dedicated to what you can, cannot do on the Sabbath. It's Judaism's oral traditions, and they, they, they detail how to interpret the law. And like I said, 24 chapters on it. It's painful stuff to read, really. It's, it's painful, honestly. They, they take the idea of not working to ridiculous extremes. For example, it details how many feet you can walk from your home on the Sabbath, and it's like literally 3,000 feet. And oh, but by the way, if you're smart and you think about it in advance, what you could do is you could walk those 3,000 feet early on Friday, because six o'clock is when the Sabbath starts, and you could put a little bit of food at the edge of your property. Now that's part of your home, and so when six o'clock comes, you can walk there, and now you're still, well, now you got another 3,000 feet. Like they actually figured that out. It's in the Talmud. I mean, you can read it for yourself. Um, they, they, they figured this out, you know, like what you could lift and what you couldn't lift. If you lifted something with your left hand and, and it fell to the ground, you could only pick it up with the left hand, not the right, because that would be working. They, they, they figured this out. Uh, you, what you could and couldn't eat, they made up forbidden fruit, foods. Like there's a list of like 80 or 90 forbidden foods that you can't eat on the Sabbath. I was raised Catholic. No fish on, was it no meat on Friday or fish? I can't remember anymore, but whatever. You're like... Thank goodness I'm no... No, I just, never mind. I want to say the wrong thing there. Don't want to get the wrong point, right? Now, did you see any of this in Exodus 20? Did you see any? I didn't. I didn't see anything about these restrictions and rules and regs. None. There were rules about what you could carry, not carry. Scribes, for example, could not carry a pen because that was their work. So you couldn't carry a pen because you might, you might sin and pull the pen out. and start. Like, it was honestly... We could be here for hours going over all these restrictions that they put in place. So here's what I think the Holy Spirit wants us to understand about this. They were, and Orthodox Jews today, by the way, feel exactly the same way, still are today, very serious about all this. They're extremely serious about all these things, right? If you broke, I mean, their attitude was basically your salvation is at stake. If you broke any of these laws, you sinned. So it was very, very Serious to them, but it's also tragic, right? Look again at what they said to Jesus back in Luke 6.2. Look at this. I'll put it on screen. It says, but some of the Pharisees said, why are you, why are you doing what is not lawful? They're talking to Jesus. Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? See, all the Pharisees could see was men eating grain. Men doing what's not, according to their law, not the commandment of God, unlawful. That's all they can see. And sadly, here's what they've done. They've elevated the model over the mission. They've made an idol out of Sabbath keeping rather than the Sabbath giver. They've made an idol out of the law rather than the lawgiver. That's what religion does. Religion focuses on me what I'm doing, how holy and righteous I am, and not on Him. It's sad. So friends, listen, hear me on this. The same attitude exists in the church today. Same attitude is found in the church today. There are, there are some, not all, but there are some denominations and some churches 
uh, which hold to what are called distinctives, uh, to models that, that they use to set themselves apart from other churches that are apparently supposed to show that they are truer, spiritually more biblical than others, worshiping God in a way that pleases Him. And that's why some of us have been in churches, quite frankly, where there are many, many, many rules. Don't put your hand up, and I am putting my hand up, and I got the t-shirt, places where the rules were like, wow, are you kidding me? What you can or cannot wear to church, for example, apparently suits and ties are authorized. They're, they're appropriate, right? Um, there's also, of course, the approved translation of the Bible. You know, there's also that in some places. There are songs we can sing and songs we cannot sing. Uh, you can stand up, sit down. You can put your hands up or, oh, no, 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 no hands up. Can't do that in the church. Don't want to see that. It's a strict liturgy in some of these churches which worship more about holy and trying to be pleasing to God. But if you read, honestly, if you read, there's a similar idea in the New Testament about what it looks like to gather as a church as there is with the Sabbath in Exodus. And you all know this. I'm just going to put it on screen for you. I mean, Peter preaches the most amazing sermon on the day of Pentecost. Thousands of people, five, six, seven thousand people come to Jesus. They repent. They're cut to the heart, right? And they're baptizing them throughout fountains and wherever they can and rivers in Jerusalem. And then it's recorded that they started to gather together as the church on the first day of the week. And we read in Acts 2.42, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. That's basically it. That's basically it. There's, there's really no other instruction in the New Testament about how you should do it. Oh, there's some corrections by Paul about what they're doing wrong in the Corinthian church and things like that, but there's really no prescription. There's description, description, but not prescription of how we gather. So it basically is telling us that we're to be devoted to the preaching of the Word. Yep, here we are, opening the Bible, preaching God's Word. We're to be devoted to fellowship, which is the word koinonia, which means more than just tea and coffee. It means offering. It means giving and funding and fueling the mission of the church, having all things in common. That's what that literally means. And the prayers, breaking of bread, communion. Now, we're not a perfect church. Trust me when I say this. But that's how we planted this church, and that's why at the rock, that's, that, those are the four things that we do. The beauty of it is I think what you see in all of this is freedom. There's a freedom in these things when you're in Christ. It's beautiful what you see in verses 43 to 46 in Act 2. From that point, they, they gather, then they scatter into homes, and they're eating meals together all week, just like Jesus we saw in the last few weeks is eating with tax collectors and sinners all the time. He's eating with people, and that's what they did in the early church. And, and people who were struggling, who needed financial help, people would sell their stuff and, and give it to them and help them, and they just loved one another. And it was just the church was exploding and growing. And then I love verse 47. It's, to me, the most encouraging verse as your pastor, as a leader in a church, because then it, it makes it clear that when Jesus said, I will build my church in Matthew 16, 18, which is where we get our name for our church called The Rock, he meant it, that he would do it. But for some, in some crazy way, he uses us. And verse 27 says, and the Lord, look at this, and the Lord added, not Glenn, not the elders, not you, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Day by day, those who were being saved, who were being invited into homes to eat meals together where they were sharing Jesus with them as well, besides their food. 
people were getting saved. Pretty simple formula, isn't it? So the behavior, when we go back to Acts, pardon me, to Luke 6, 1 to 2, the behavior of the disciples and Jesus in the grain field that day was heresy to these guys. It was out and out heresy to them. They're like, what are you doing, right? But to the disciples, think about this. What was it to the disciples, what they were doing? Now, you've got to remember, these, these guys are Peter, the fisherman. There's Matthew, the Levi. You know, there's James and Ed. They're, they're all fishermen and tax collectors and a few women and maybe some of them were women of the street and they're there and they're all Jewish too, by the way, mostly we would assume at this point in time and they're going, what are they experiencing? They know that this is wrong. What are they experiencing? Freedom. Freedom. And they're experiencing that freedom because of Jesus Christ. You'll remember when we studied the, the book to the Galatians. I mean, this is, you know, 15 years after Jesus has ascended and the churches have begun. Peter, uh, Paul has planted these lovely churches in Galatia. Now he's worried about them. Why? Well, he preached to them the true gospel, which we've been hearing, which is Jesus dying on the cross in your place and for your sins, and you need to repent of that and put all of your faith and trust in him for your life and for eternity. But these Judaizers, huh? Yes. These religious guys started coming down from Jerusalem, coming into the churches and saying, no, 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 no. You can't be a Christian until you become Jewish first. And guys, you need to be circumcised. In other words, you need to keep the law and follow the law. Well, we learned in that series that there's, there's two poles, there's two opposite and opposing poles in life and in the church even today. There's the pole of license. You know, we can do whatever we want. Grace abounds. You can do whatever you want. No, you can't. And then there's the, the one over here called legalism. You know, rules and regulations. And, and and it's not about a happy medium. It's about freedom. Paul's thesis in, in chapter 5 of Galatians is, for freedom Christ has set you free. For freedom Christ has set you free. In John chapter 8, he uh, records uh, Jesus' words in verses 31 and 32, and Jesus said this to the Jews who had believed him. Listen, if you abide in my word, in what I have to say, in what I teach, in what's coming out of my mouth, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and look at this, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. So this is exactly what the disciples on that specific Sabbath day were experiencing. They were with the incarnate Son of God, truth in the flesh. And he is freely going about doing what they have been told by their religious leaders for decades that is sinful, is wrong. And they're just, they're having some grain. They've got this freedom that they found in him. And we experience, honestly, we should be experiencing, friends, the same freedom in the church we should be experiencing that in the church as well. So let's now see Jesus' answer. This is interesting. He says to them, have you not read, I love this, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. Well, we don't see it today when we read these words, but when they heard the words, have you not read, that was a slap. <laughs> you know, G- Jesus is, he's very black and white, and, and he's very direct 
Because that is exactly the language that they, the Pharisees and scribes, would use to some lowly Jewish brother or sister who was breaking the law. Have you not read? <laughs> and, and yet Jesus is using that language. Well, that, he's just winning friends and influencing people here, I'm sure. Jesus reminds them of a time, listen, when David, heir to the throne of Israel, was running from King Saul, who was king at the time, but, but David was to be the heir, and, and Saul wanted to kill David. It's a great story. We might look at it in Missional Community Group this week. I'll, I'll be sending out the notes tomorrow for that, and, and we might look at that. We read in 1 Samuel 21 that David and his men, after they were running, they arrive uh, at the tabernacle where there is this priest there whose name is Ahimelech, and, 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 and there's this bread in the tabernacle which is called the bread of presence or showbread. Now, there, there's a lot to the story, which maybe we can dive into, as I said, in community group this week. But for today, we need to see this. God commanded this in, in Leviticus. Leviticus is awesome, right? In Leviticus, he commanded that only, only the priest could eat the showbread or the bread of presence when the fresh bread arrived on the Sabbath, right? On the Sabbath. So long story short, David and his men are hungry. They ask for the bread. And at first, the priest is like... Um, Look, there's no bread here. What do you think we are, a bakery? <laughs> he, he's kind of like, mm, mm, pushes back a little bit. But then David kind of pushes and insists. And, and when the, the priest makes sure that the men have not been with a woman lately, in other words, means now that they're in the tabernacle, that they're clean, ceremonially clean, he relents. He allows them to have the bread, and they eat it. He shows them mercy, compassion, and grace, doesn't he? Now, now, the Pharisees, they would have read this. They would have known this story for centuries. Clearly, they didn't get it or understand it at all. They didn't understand what was going on here. But once he makes, as I said, he makes these men show this. It's good. So this was a great example, listen, in that day of this priest not worshiping the model, not worshiping the law over the lawgiver, Right? Jesus is saying this, if David has this freedom, was allowed and given this freedom by a priest, a Levitical priest, in my tabernacle, then don't my disciples have the freedom to eat this grain in the field with me on the Sabbath? Wow. I mean, the Pharisees, they, 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 they got to understand that he is claiming to be God, isn't he? I mean, he's been doing it for weeks, months, and they keep missing it or denying it. Well, then Jesus delivers the most significant line in the sand when he says this. He said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. There was only one way, really, for them to take this. It was like a mic drop, right? There's only one way for them to take this. Jesus is saying, your rules, your regulations on the Sabbath are not God's. They're not mine. You don't rule and reign over the Sabbath. I do. What I say can and cannot happen on the Sabbath is the truth. Not what you've written and what you've said. Really, what he's saying is, I know the truth about you and your hearts, but more, I know the truth about the Sabbath because I am the truth. That's the line in the sand, friends, in our world today. There's the truth, and then there's everybody else's truth. It's quite a line. It goes on in our story. We'll close just by going through the last 
Sabbath story very quickly, but it says this, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him, watched him carefully to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. On this occasion, of course, Jesus, now he's in the temple teaching. So they haven't completely outlawed him or, you know, forbidden him to speak in the pulpit. They've brought him in. He's speaking in the, and, and he's, and, and it's similar, honestly, like the time when he was in Peter's house, right? And the paralytic is brought to him. He's being watched very closely by these Pharisees to see if he's going to mess up and do something wrong. Hi there. Um, and while he's preaching, this man simply walks in, right? And, and he's got this withered hand, which is probably meaning it was, uh, there was a paralysis of some kind. And, and so he's right there in front of Jesus, right? Right there. And the key that I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to see is that they, the Pharisees, could care less about this man's con- condition. They just... It was like, you know, it's like on Sunday, you come into church and you're not feeling too good. You're, you know, you're, you're, your visage is very low and someone's, hi, welcome to The Rock. How you doing? No, it wouldn't happen at The Rock. And it's just like, boom, right by you. It's like, what? They don't even notice that. No, they're more concerned about Jesus and what he might do so that they can, can accuse him. This is really how hard their hearts have become. It's what bad religion does to people. Again, the Scripture tells us what Jesus knows. It says, but he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. So it's like the guy, the paralytic coming down with the bed, right? Same story, same situation. And he rose and he stood there in front of Jesus. It almost looked like a little bit like Jesus is trying to taunt them, doesn't it? I mean, he's like, he's like oh, I don't think it's taunting, but it's making them very angry. And, and, and again, they, they haven't spoken. They haven't said anything, but Jesus knows their hearts and their thoughts. And he sets the stage beautifully in verse 9 where he says, And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? So Jesus starts off by saying, is it lawful? And at that point, I'm thinking the, the Pharisees and, and the scribes are probably thinking, okay, this is our wheelhouse, okay? We know the law. Now he's in our court now. But then Jesus puts a hook out there because the way Jesus puts it to them, he, he basically comes down to this. Guys, are you going to care? Are you going to have mercy and compassion or not? Is that why you think I set up the Sabbath? Look, they had actually made up more rules, by the way, about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath if someone was sick, if someone was hurt and in pain, someone was dying. Here's the bottom line. The bottom line is don't get sick on the Sabbath. Because their attitude was you're going to die. We're not going to do anything for you. They also had the attitude that if you were sick or had a withered hand or something was, you know, like oppressing you in that way, it was probably because there was great sin in your life and God was punishing you. That is, again, if you study it, that's exactly what they were thinking. It just makes the Sabbath a wonderful day to celebrate, doesn't it? Not so much. And so Jesus, <laughs> Jesus uh, just, you know, his response is beautiful. I mean, either way, when he, when he asks that question, either way, it's going to do one of two things. It's going to expose their hearts for what they really are, or worse, in their opinion anyway, it's going to make Jesus look wonderful. And they can't have that. Our conclusion in the passage is this. 
Imagine that. The guy's standing right in front of Jesus. Jesus is like, is anybody with me? (laughs) Is anybody with me? After looking around at all of them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was restored, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Jesus worked on the Sabbath, didn't he? He showed compassion to a man who needed it, who needed a healing. Now, the man could have waited until the next day, couldn't he? Jesus could have said, talk to me after 6 o'clock. <laughs> he, could have, he could have done anything. He's making a point. He's Lord of the Sabbath. Listen, friends, Jesus is Lord, right? He's Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of all. Since the beginning of chapter 5 in Luke until today's Sabbath stories, Jesus is declaring to them that your religion, listen, your religion is dead. It's old wineskins. It's of no use for new wine, what I'm bringing. And so here's the why. Here's the why that I asked earlier in the beginning of this message. Why most people eventually turn on Jesus. It's about the narrow gate and the wide road, isn't it? It's always about that. They, the, the bottom line is they, they can't handle the truth. They can't handle the truth. They eventually turn on Jesus. They all want, no matter how false, no matter how much bondage it places them under, no matter how long they continue to struggle with their bad religion, all they, they all want their own religion. Everyone does, even today, right? Everyone has a religion. It's what gets you up in the morning. Some people call it a worldview. I like to call it a religion, right? It's what gets you up and helps you get through the day. It's your belief system that's at work. Their problem ultimately is this. Their problem is with the truth, which is why our world is, has lost touch with the truth. Oprah said in her speech recently, which everyone all of a sudden wanted to make her president of the United States, speak your truth. Friends, here's the truth. It's like what we learned about righteousness together a few years ago. Everyone in our world wants to seem to be righteous, right? To be pure and to be holy and to be right. Everyone wants to see that. Why? This is hard, but hear me. Because we don't have it. (laughs) In and of ourselves, no one in this room, I, apart from Christ, we don't have righteousness. Only God does. Only God does. It's the same thing with truth. You don't have your own truth to speak. Friends, think about this, especially as you engage people in our world. You have facts about your story of your life, but it's not your own truth. This is the mantra, really, of the postmodern and apparently enlightened, tolerant, politically correct, my truth is my truth culture that we live in today. It's a lie. Why? Because Jesus is the truth. He embodies the truth of God. Only God has it, knows it, and only God can speak His truth. You all know this verse. I'll leave you with it this morning. Jesus said, I am the way, the definite article truth. No one comes to the Father but by me. But by me. I love the fact that actually I have one more, sorry. Matthew recorded the incident that happened in his home when the Pharisees and scribes challenged the disciples and Jesus afterwards. He recorded something Jesus said that Luke didn't. So it's remarkable that Matthew, the Jew, the tax collector, remembered these words 
because he recorded this in Matthew 9, 13. Go and learn what this means, Jesus saying to the Pharisees and the scribes. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. That's what the law and the commandments were all about. God showing his goodness and his love and his mercy and his compassion toward us because he truly does love us and he is the truth. Pray with me, would you?